All right, so I am in a virtual room with Carol Lee. She's so close to me, but so far away. I mean, this is their, our life of uh, virtual communication, but let's not let that block our, and despite the um, internet, uh, I can hear a little bit of glitchiness, but let, let's try to do this. All right, so Carol, Carol's an East West Center um, graduate degree fellow this year, uh, serving a master's in Asian international affairs. Uh, and Carol, I brought you in because we kind of met from the East West Center kind of um, group chats and uh, the interest through music and, you know, studying abroad and interest in different Asian cultures. And I wanted to learn about you. Um, I think our K2H audience also deserves to know where our new students are coming from and what they're all about. Um, and importantly, to address certain kind of uh, more pressing matters now um, that, uh, that, that uh, bring up a sensitivity with language and culture, which we'll get into. So if you're just tuning in now, we're talking um, about language, the performance of language and culture, uh, and the relationship between particularly the Asian and Black communities. I think that's something that's very under-addressed and, and increasingly important right now. So Carol, um, welcome again to the program. And uh, welcome to UH. I know you're, you from, so you're from Hawaii, though. You grew up here, right? Tell me a little bit about yourself. Yeah, definitely. Thank you again for having me on the show. This is really exciting. And I was originally born and raised here in Hawaii. I grew up not too far from UH in Makiki. And I went to Roosevelt High School. And I went to Chinatown all the time and Ala Moana, all these places but ended up leaving Hawaii to go to uh, Willamette University for my undergraduate education. And it kind of just um, set me on this journey of learning and growing. And I ended up teaching in Asia after I graduated and now I'm back home for my study. Okay. Well, this is a one, one of your full circles, right? <laughs> and I hope to have many yes. in your life. Um, so you say you grew up um, here, and uh, you went to Chinatown often. Is it because your your parents like brought you there to eat your you know dim sum, or was it something kind of a regular a community place to hang out? What what was your reason for being drawn to Chinatown? It was actually because of my grandparents. Um, uh -huh. So my dad's parents. I know popo and gong gong isn't the correct word or language term for them because that's my dad's parents. But I guess my my parents just said, oh, everyone just says grandma and grandpa here, right? In English. So they just made me call them popo and gong gong. Um, my so my popo, popo and gong same thing. Yeah. Oh, okay, okay. Because I, I know it's like, that's your dad. Your, this should be your mom's parents. Oh, I see. Um, right. But yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but anyway, I, I would go there with my popo and gong gong because that was kind of where their uh, social circles were um, and I would go there and follow them and help them buy groceries and we would eat dim sum or um, our lamb fun and all these other types of foods uh, so I, I, I have a lot many fond memories of, with my grandparents in Chinatown and on my mom's side um, we would go to like Palama supermarket and mm -hmm. other like Korean grocery stores um, so yeah, I think that's kind of where 
my family's friend circles were uh, versus me. I, I'm like second generation. So I, I was kind of in a weird middle girl. Okay. Well, I like that. I mean, the, I, I'm fascinated by the weird middle because I think that um, culturally speaking, you know, everybody is kind of in between places. We're, we're never like just one thing, right? Um, you're, mm-hmm. peop- people assume, okay, so you're Asian. Um, what part of Asia are you from? You look, you know, so, so there's so many complexities behind a person's identity. And I think that's kind of like part of your research, right? In your kind of in Asian studies. Um, right, absolutely. And I, I, I think I wish I knew that it was okay to be in a weird middle growing up. Because when I was younger, you know, there was like terminology like, oh, those people are so fob, fresh off the boat, or like, you're so like, ABC. <laughs> yeah, 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 you're like, oh, uh, my grandma, my popo would say like, oh, local moi, like, you're, you're such a local girl, but you're not like a Chinese girl, you know? Did they ever um, call you a banana? You ever heard of that? The banana? I've heard of it. Um, I don't think we... I never grew up hearing that a lot. So but the people, I don't know, maybe it's an, from an Asian perspective of looking at Asian born, I mean, um, American born Chinese, but it's the idea of being white or they look, you look yellow outside, you look Asian, but inside you're white, right? So people don't know yeah, what that, yeah, that yeah. implication is. And then there's that other Chinese term called zhuxing, which is um, a bamboo. And um, usually oh. that um, implies a very kind of a Chinese exterior, but it's empty inside, which is probably even worse. So they're actually kind of derogatory terms for us Asian Americans um, that have been filtering out there mm-hmm. by Asians who say, okay, you're not even, you know, you're Asian, but you don't even know your Asian culture. You don't even speak your language. So, you know, you're like this hollow inside. And so that kind of, um, that, that, I think that might have affected a lot of uh, Ameri- Asian Americans growing up as in their identity because it's like, okay, well, I don't have that culture anyway, so I'm not even going to embrace it if you don't even recognize that in my in me, right? Right, absolutely. I, I and I, I think it's it's this constant push and pull that we have to experience of not being enough or being too much of something and not fitting a certain standard. And I think that leads us to have a lack of racial identity um, and security and therefore a lack of solidarity and community sometimes. Um, And we try to find these um, in the ways that we can. Um, But I I feel there, there is a divide between those in Asia or even those who grew up in Asia like our parents or grandparents and then those who end up in the diaspora. Yeah. And then there's those who kind of fall in between about, again, going back to that blurry space. Like for me, I spent half of my childhood in Hong Kong and half in the United States. And so I'm not necessarily just an American born Chinese. I am a transnational, Mm -hmm. you know, person. And I think that we tend to categorize people like, okay, you're either FOB or ABC. That's when we grew up, we had those terms, mm-hmm. right? And, mm-hmm. and, and that blurry middle doesn't even get recognized. You're, you have to choose one to identify yourself. And then that exacerbates itself through media, through our kind of self-identification, as you had mentioned. And I just wanted to pull mm-hmm. in that reference to the um, Trevor Noah interviewing Ronnie Chang sequence. 
um, and we'll get more into it later, but I just remember when they were speaking on behalf of the addressing that professor's, you know, so-called improper terms on, on language, um, <laughs> Trevor asks Ronnie if a certain thing was said in Chinese and he goes, well, I don't know what you, why are you asking me? I don't speak any Chinese. And it stumped Trevor Noah because he didn't, <laughs> he didn't know how to respond to it, but Ronnie was fooling around with him. He says like, basically implying, hey, what, you think I look Asian so that all Asians speak Chinese? Which is a very good point because people always assume things by what we look like, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, right. Right. Um, and, and I think I think language is 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 the key one of the key reasons why we feel disconnected from the the communities in Asia totally. as well. Um, yeah, totally agree. And um, I don't know if it's a you know it's, it's, it's do you blame your parents for not <laughs> forcing you to go through Chinese school or if you didn't oh. <laughs> grasp that opportunity to learn through your your chances so it's it's complicated right but i guess that's a whole right issue. absolutely i mean um mm -hmm. why do so many asian americans struggle with identity and i think you're right the language part is a huge huge aspect of it um right and and i, I also think there's there's a degree of of foreignness that comes with it if you grow up in america i i feel it's almost in certain communities looked down upon if you speak another language or are trying even even when you try to embrace your culture you're seen as an other by the dominant culture here in america so it it's almost like you have to play this game of i'm trying to embrace who i am but i also have to assimilate to the culture that i current and context that i currently live in and we don't allow for extra room and more complications and nuances. Yeah, yeah. When you were, um, so you studied or you were teaching English in China and um, Hong Kong and Korea, mm -hmm. right? Yes, uh, yes. So how did you feel being an American, I guess, in an Asian place um, with that context? Like, did you feel othered by the local Asians where you were? Or did they see you as Asian because of uh, what you look like? You know, it's quite complicated because um, I think I think when they first see me, they think I'm, I'm you know, from Asia, from them. Um, so they immediately start speaking to me in Mandarin or Cantonese or Korean, you know? Um, and then I have to tell them like, oh, oh, well, she's a or, you know, like, or, or, <laughs> and, then, and then, then they have to, it goes into this wrong conversation right? of them asking like, oh, but you're not American, right? Like your parents. Yeah, like, right. Like it was a lot of prying to justify the fact that I don't look white, basically, to them. Um, so I, therefore, it, I can't be truly American. Um, so for me, luckily, I could speak a little bit of the language to kind of explain my story. But I think a lot about like fourth, fifth, gen Asian Americans who don't speak the language or adoptees, Asian American adoptees right. who don't have any connection to their homelands and don't feel Asian in certain aspects. And so does that make them less American? You know, so yeah. I, I, I think for me, it was kind of this complex of I was accepted because, you know, 
uh, ethnic nationalism, but also I'm not quite accepted because culturally, like I'm a mix between all these cultures. Um, and I and you don't see States. that. You don't see that beyond the, the, the yellow skin, right? That's like, I mean, that's the whole problem with American cultures. We are somehow so um, trained, I guess. I don't know if that's the word to see based on skin, historically speaking, this whole problematic kind of um, hierarchy of skin color. And so what I wanted to do is to bring in that um, concept of, of racism in um, ethnicity and, and identity and language. So let's take a quick break. Um, we're going to return and we'll bring in that conversation about this whole kind of controversial um, news about that professor who got suspended for uh, using his Chinese context and it got all blown out of proportion and we'll talk about that. All right, we're back. I am speaking to Carol Lee from the East West Center as a graduate degree fellow. Um, Carol, welcome again uh, back to where you grew up. But, you know, it's really interesting because we all are multicultural in terms of our traveling and background, and we come together to address issues that have such a long history of embedded kind of um, implications. And I'm talking about specifically this uh, recent case where a professor in business at USC was um, accused of uh, creating a very racial uh, slur, but he was using his Chinese. This, this new case, this very recent um, controversial argument over whether this professor, Greg Patton, um, whose intention was explaining filler words of Chinese and how it sounded like um, the N-word in English. I don't know if you want to mm -hmm. recap the story a little bit better than I did, um, but basically kind of blew into this explosive thing that he had created this, um, whether it was intentional or not, that he should have been sensitive to know, enough to know in this light, in today's Black Lives Movement era, that he had said something that really kind of um, disrespected uh, African-Americans. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. what do you think about that? And maybe you can add to the details of the case. Yeah, definitely. I think, I think, I'm trying to think where to begin because with language and culture, we always have to turn to history and politics, right? Yes. And the context that led us to this moment, not just our current moment. And when we think about specifically the N-word, it, it comes from a legacy of bigotry, um, of being used against Black people in America um, before it was, you know, with the hard E-R and then it turned into an A. And um, there are attempts for the Black community to reclaim this word, right? But it's still a very traumatic reminder um, to a lot of Black people that, you know, that this, this has been used to um, oppress them and continues to be used to oppress them. So there's a lot of politics behind who can use, who should uh, you be able to use that word. Um, but... At the same time, like the word uh, naga or nega is in Chinese. It means that. It exactly. is a Chinese word um, that Chinese people have used for centuries. And so now you have this conflict 
and clash where looking at just cultural difference is not enough. We have to look at the political history of Black and Asian relations specifically in not actually in this case in the United States, but we can talk about even anti-Blackness in Asia as well. So I, I feel that there, is, there has always been a distrust um, between the communities and also a silencing of the fact that our communities have worked together in the past. So when this case comes up, I feel that, yes, we have to acknowledge it is, it is a very triggering word. And for the professor could have chosen other filler words. That's true. Um, right. But, but at the same time, I think we have to understand this is a Chinese word. This is a word that Chinese people use. And by immediately removing the professor and saying in a very one-sided argument, this is wrong, you're basically kind of telling Chinese people that, oh, you, you using that word is wrong when it's not technically wrong in like a language linguistic context. Right. Um, so I, I think there needs to be more conversations um, and it, it, it doesn't help that it was just like, oh, this is right, this is wrong. It's a very polarizing action that USC took um, with, with this case. And, and I think that is very revealing. The action um, taken really kind of, I, I know there is so many, um, you know, as institutions, they have the responsibility to address this anti-Blackness um, in, in, in very kind of pressing ways. And so I think their way of doing this, but without understanding, like you said, the context of how this was done to begin with um, is not necessarily right. But it really is. It shows so much about the oversensitivity of how, how we go about addressing, you know, what is discriminating or why we should be looking into words or how come we can't um, just uh, have our good intentions of doing our own cultural conversations and have it turned into something that's just turned, you know, into a completely different context. You know, I sent this article to my dad and he thought it was just the most ridiculous thing because as, an, as a Chinese person looking at that language, even with the sensitivity of uh, addressing um, black lives today, which is very important, but how, how do we, you know, do we have to be so conscious of our words that, um, well, I mean, that is the question. Do we have to be so sensitive to words now, today, to recognize and by being sensitive as being kind of a, an ally to the movement? You know, is it that's is that what it takes? Mm -hmm. Is that what people are expecting of everyone? Right. You know, I think when I mean from my my background, I was a communication major uh, when I was at Willamette University, and and language does help shape perception and culture. Like you can you can kind of tell a lot about, um, for example, Chinese language, uh, Chinese people through. Chinese language versus Korean language versus, you know, English. It also gives you a context of the people and culture. So I feel language is important and it's evolving. Um, and we have to be able to adapt and evolve and understand how language has been used to exclude uh, 
people. However, I think on this particular case, it shows almost a laziness, a laziness to kind of complicate the conversation and just, you know, think about, oh, okay, like we, we don't want to lose quote diversity points and lose, you know, it's, it's, you know, universities yeah. are uh, for the most part money-making institutions. Like, Absolutely. oh, we don't want bad PR. Okay. We're just gonna, we're just gonna yeah. do this quick yeah. action. Like it should be fine. Totally. And that, that, that right there, really hard work takes really being introspective and understanding and deliberate in term and strategic almost in terms of moving forward. And I you feel hearing? that for people yeah. who say, oh, people are just being insensitive. Um, yes. Uh, people are just uh, being language police. Like, no, that's not the, that's not the case. It's, it's, it's a little bit more complicated and important than that. So I yeah. think, um, I think I'm, I'm just worried that it, it becomes this laziness on people's parts and, and it, it just turns into apathy. That's a very good point. Um, I wanted to kind of share an experience or kind of an issue that I am addressing with my documentary process. So I'm doing a documentary mm -hmm. uh, for people who don't know um, on the Chinese position in the segregated South. Um, so my grandmother grew up in a very Chinese uh, traditional kind of household in the black neighborhood. And so there's, I'm, I'm, I'm you know, exploring all the race dynamics. Um, so I bring up this term that I grew up as a Chinese American. When, we re when Chinese people refer to African-Americans, there's this term and it's, it's hakwai, which is if you translate it is black ghost, right? Now, during the time when we all grew up speaking it, it was not a derogatory term. It was just like a way to refer, right? But mm -hmm. with that sensitivity and what you're talking about is how we need to kind of change our ways of addressing it and question why these terms formed to begin with, you know? And so when I bring that up, every time I have a presentation on my, on my um, project, it really stirs a very heated discussion. So some people, um, especially older Chinese, they're quite defensive about it. They're like, well, you know, this is something we grew up with. It's not, you know, we can say bakwai, which is white ghost, which refers to the white people. But what is the connotation of the ghost word in there? And then people are saying, well, when they talk about Japanese, then it's very derogatory. And they admit that's derogatory for that purpose. So what is it, a selective way to use a word to address people, um, whether you want to intentionally kind of insert that derogatory tone or not. But then like for young Asian Americans growing up and hearing that word and not knowing the dynamics and the context to the relationships at the time, um, you grew up with it as a norm and then you have to question that, right? I just think like going back to your point about language and, and what's embedded in it and how terms come to be and how we need to um, think about that. And, and that is why there's kind of like maybe this whole movement attacking words right now, because we're kind of like oversensitized where everything is trigger sensitive now. Right. Yeah. I mean, I feel this, this um, has been going on for a few years. I remember when I was at Willamette, um, 
like, I think that's when I started thinking about my words a lot more because I think growing up in Hawaii, for example, we have a very deeply embedded uh, joke culture for, and, and words don't, I mean, on the surface, they shouldn't matter because we're a quote melting pot. It's quote majority Asians, but you know, words actually have hurted me for a good chunk of my life. And I didn't understand those, the, the implications and how words affected me until I started really exploring that when I was uh, in undergrad and how I, when I would say certain words um, to my friends, for example, like, oh, you, you didn't grow up with, with Asian food all the time. Like, what kind of Asian are you? It was very hurtful to huh. my friends and they would be like, what, why would you ever say that? Even something um, such as where are you from? For us in Hawaii, a lot of the times it's, it's like, or, or what, what, what are you, you know, what ethnic background you are. It's very common here, I think. But um, when I was in Oregon, when I would ask that to someone, it, it's very triggering, triggering for them because they've had to deal with explaining what, quote, what are they to many white people their whole life. So I think it's, it's, it's a very difficult process. Um, and I think it's just acknowledging and validating at least to that person who has been hurt. Like, hey, I hear that you've been hurt. Like, whether or not you change, that's... That's not up to me to, to say, um, but at least acknowledging people's experiences, I think that's the first step. Yeah, yeah. I think a lot of people don't really know how to respond to situations like that now. And that's why we have these conversations and how we need to address things in new light. And, it, you know, you bring up your experience in Oregon and it just, it, here in Hawaii, we're so kind of, I guess we're, we're, we're we're lucky that we are so diverse here. So we can engage in this conversation about um, these, these questions of identity and, and Asian culture and discrimination based on words. But if we took this conversation and we had it in Oregon, like what kind of people are listening and how are they gonna respond to our conversation and recognizing who's framing um, the content is also an important aspect, right? Right, right. And you know what's interesting actually, um, I was I was kind of scared to have these conversations in Hawaii um, because there is this perception of equality. And so whenever I would come back, because the Black Lives Matter movement has been around for almost a decade now. Um, and I, um, I was first a part, I, I wouldn't say I was like on the front lines of the movement and I needed to do, I definitely need to do more. But I was uh, a part of, protests in Oregon back in 2014 when Mike Brown was shot. So this movement has been going on for six, but more than six years. You know, that's just my timeline. Mm -hmm. So when I would bring these topics back home, that's when people would call me PC police or um, like, Kara, why you like this now? Or like, can we not talk about politics? And that was a specific thing to people in Hawaii. Um, but up until this point, now I'm seeing a lot more conversations about race and identity um, in the mainstream. I was even surprised that there was a Black Lives Matter protest in Hawaii with such a turnout. Oh, yeah. And that, that Alicia, uh, Alicia Garza is going She's, to do the keynote. Yes, yes. And we need to highlight that. Everybody needs to go and listen to that talk. You know, yeah. I, with the amount 
of people who use the n-word here in Hawaii, even in my friend circles, who say very anti-black comments and jokes, I, you know, but, but we just brush it off like, oh, no, it's like, oh, no, you know, don't be, don't be so sensitive, have a thicker skin. And so in certain cases, I felt I could talk to people in Oregon a little bit more because they see before their eyes the racial inequality. Um, so it's, it's a little bit complicated, hmm, interesting. I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, but now I think the fact that the Black Lives Matter movement has become so mainstream for good and bad reasons, exactly. we have more access to resources to talk about race. When the movement um, just got re resurfaced in the mainstream with the murder of George Floyd, everyone was posting resources like Ethnic Studies 101, like how do we talk about race? Like even the Asian American community started talking about like anti-blackness in the Asian community. So I think the pros of this, this movement have been um, being able to create a space where we can talk about this and it's not like, oh, oh, what are you doing? <laughs> you know? But I worry about that open space because are we addressing it the way we need to? Because everybody and their aunt is coming out and giving their kind of testimony and how they support. You know, every organization had to come out with that whole thing. But um, what, how productive and constructive are we in addressing it? Let's take a quick break and we'll come back and let's talk about constructiveness yeah. and, and, and what it means to really put this on the plate and, and, and address these uncomfortable um, conversations, particularly between the Asian and um, black communities, because um, this is what we're talking. And we, you know, we, we, this, the spark of that uh, USC professor being um, criticized and, and suspended for his, in an unintentional use of uh, a word that sounded like um, a very negative um, insult to African-Americans is um, just the tip of an iceberg of how we address language and culture and identity um, and racial context. So let's come back. Hello, welcome back to K2H. If you're listening and you're just tuning in now, I have been chatting with Carol Lee from the East-West Center as a degree fellow and also as a master doing her master's in Asian international affairs. Now, Carol, we kind of discussed a lot about the, the trigger um, sensitive kind of racial Okay, you know, it's not just the USC case with a professor, um, you know, being bombarded by how he unintentionally implied a certain racial term. It's a worldwide thing, this idea of what this anti-blackness means on a global scale, I think. And I wanted to draw um, a little bit away from the American context. It's just more internationally, how this whole Black Lives Matter is in fact kind of exploded around the world um, and how people are addressing it in different countries. Because when I was just in Hong Kong this last summer, I really, um, it, you know, to address anti-Blackness with a community of, um, for example, um, South Asians and Southeast Asians and how they feel about discrimination and, you know, where that came from, the whole history of their, um, relationship with colonial places like Hong Kong, you know, um, there's a lot we don't know in terms of how we address uh, discrimination. There's a lot embedded in history that we don't seem to address. Um, I just wanted to pick your 
thoughts on that because you have traveled to Asia so much and you are studying Asian studies. And um, I feel like you're quite politically motivated um, in terms of just understanding the context of how things work, um, culturally speaking. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's, it's a matter of thinking about not only culture, I guess, for the you know, uh, East Asian context, we think about Confucius, for example, and social harmony. So things like a very um, disruptive movement um, doesn't, doesn't, I guess, uh, fly well with a lot of uh, Asian communities at first. But it's not only thinking about that, but it's thinking about politics and how anti-Blackness you know, stems from Western imperialism and colonialism and created this hierarchy that doesn't, it, it affects Black people in a very specific way, but, on, but also affects other Asian Americans who are not light-skinned, who are from South and Southeast Asia, who are Black to um, certain Asians. So like, for example, in China, my Indian friend was called Black uh, by some local Chinese people, even though she's Indian. So I think um, it's, it's thinking about how the hierarchy was created and how whiteness specifically creates a certain... Um, Cheryl Harris writes in her piece, the whiteness as property, whiteness through imperialism and colonialism has been used to be a protective measure from oppression. Being white stopped you from being a slave in America, right? So um, before, like, poor white people actually worked together with slaves, but mm -hmm. they created this idea of whiteness, you know, to, to divide and, yes. and, and to justify colonialism of, quote, the savage people or the Orient. So that on top of even just, you know, who works in the fields in Asia, right? So mm -hmm. darker skin was always, you know, compared with socioeconomic class. Um, all these factors kind of add to this um, anti-Blackness that persists um, from Asia. And it trickles down into communities in America, Asian Americans in communities in America and the diaspora, because when Asians come here and immigrate, they are coming for survival, right? You have many of our parents and families struggling mm -hmm. just to even make it by. So when you're yearning for this power, when you're yearning for even a piece of the pie, oftentimes in that struggle, you're going to push down whoever, you know, gets in the way, or you're going to, you know, feed into the dominant narrative. So that's why you have things like the model minority. Right. And, and I was whatnot. just going to say, yeah, yeah, right, right. So, um, so it's this, this coupling of understanding the survival, um, and the lack of access and exposure um, to, you know, other ideas. And, and on top of, you know, the political things that are going on, that make it very difficult for our communities to have conversations um, and really address this issue sometimes. But yeah. I think with the movement specifically, I did notice when I was living in Korea, I think Korea actually was doing a, um, a good job of promoting diversity. Like even there were um, black students in my textbooks, 
Mm -hmm. um, when I was teaching my elementary students, hmm. um, which is a little bit different from China where you have the firewall and you don't right. really have positive representations <laughs> of black people, um, except that they're following the China dream. Um, right. That, you know, you know, the, the whole China Africa relations is, Oh yeah. That's a whole other <laughs> can of worms. <laughs> but, but in Korea specifically, um, we weren't, uh, allowed, I mean, they had a protest actually. They had a protest, um, but with COVID and everything going on, there was right. a lot of like, um, rhetoric about, Oh, you shouldn't, you know, put people's lives at risk for a protest. And this okay. But, but, I think um, because of the movement, actually yeah. anti-discrimination laws in Korea were being put back on the table and being put into conversation. So when we think about what is productive, what is constructive, mm -hmm. we have to look at both symbolic and material change. So symbolic change is things like representation, it's ideas, um, it's, it's promoting a new narrative and norm versus material change, it's, it's things like defunding the police or, you know, black people getting access to resources so that they're not disproportionately affected by COVID, for example, anymore, because they are. Um, so when we think about symbolic and material change, we have to see how they work together mm -hmm. and see the ways in which we have to start moving beyond the symbolic change for example, I would say USC's professor, you know, that case mm -hmm. was like, um, I, I guess it, 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 was, it was kind of symbolic of like, look, yeah. we're finally taking action um, because all the other instances we haven't taken action. So we're going to take action with this case. But the, um, you know, how much material change has it really done for the Black community? Um, so I... I, and at, I, and I, at what cost? I wanted to say at what cost? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. we, we think we're doing something for a movement, but what what is being sacrificed in that process as well, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, yeah, I think this movement now is very transnational, and we have to, we have, you know, you know, Asians in Asia have to understand that there are many Blasians. There are many people who are both Black and Asian in our community. We mm -hmm. have a lot of overseas. Uh, folks who are both, you know, black um, and that, that come to Asia to work or, or live. And we have to be understanding that racial tolerance and equality is key at this point. Yeah. And I think that there are many, you know, harmonious um, communities that are not being seen or represented in media i think media right. again calling out on what is covered or, or or framing stories to highlight certain discriminations which do exist but not seeing the other sides i mean i don't know if when you were in china if you saw i i you can even look on, on youtube there are many documentaries that the cctv had created um to show the relationships between chinese um and their African partners and their families mm -hmm. growing up Malaysian, like you said, um, mm -hmm. in China. And again, you know, there's the China government trying to say, hey, you know, we, we support this inclusivity and it's all great. And then when COVID hit, you have like the news items where like this African guy was not even allowed to go into an, a, a convenience store uh, 
because they thought because he looked black that he therefore might have a higher chance of being infected you know so right, <laughs> all right. these things these fears and kind of uh yeah just go come back down to the the racism roots tend to kind of um really emerge um in significant ways during these these times these 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 very tempestuous times don't you think everything yeah. becomes a racial issue now and and it has been but i wanted to say something about your comment um on the the history like we it's easy for asians to they don't admit it but i think that there is this embedded discrimination against um black people because they see this is the, that model minority myth thing right mm -hmm, um mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. oh yeah they're lazy we are here to work hard against um what we left from and we're striving to create a, a new life for ourselves the, the the their history has nothing to do with our history and so we need to focus on our our plight and and how we can improve ourselves and not be like them and when they say them they're othering them mm -hmm. because they're the lesser less educated mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. you know and but we don't question why and how they got to that position right you mentioned right. that whole that whole white center and the hundreds of years of of that eurocentric um kind of system of of mm -hmm. pressing down on that and why do we not recognize it does this come to does it how do we change that concept and even open up our our consciousness to understand or recognize that they came from a place that was deeply deeply oppressed how do we bring that in do you think it's education do you think it's um you know community work to bridge the different communities in different conversations together mm -hmm. how do how, what do you think are some constructive ways we can build this asian um and african-american solidarity oh yeah i think that's an excellent question and i think you brought up amazing points mm -hmm. and the fact that this work has been done for a very long time even during the civil rights movement we have cases like uh, for example, I think the Asian American community brings up Yuri Kochiyama or Grace Lee Boggs, who work very mm -hmm. closely with um, African American civil rights leader or Black freedom movement leaders. Um, and I think this work has been done. The fact of the matter is, is we are so uh, entrenched with the norm and seeing that this is so abnormal that we shouldn't like we, we we're not taught to question the status quo um except in like you know movies right so i i think about how we did learn about slavery we did learn about colonialism we never problematized it growing mm. up because that what you know history is written by the victor Mm -hmm, right and mm -hmm. who whose textbooks are we reading re uh, reading yeah. so we never had the encouragement to see hey actually you know we we you know the fact that desegregation has been around less than slavery mm -hmm. that's a problem mm. um but we see everything and we were taught everything in a certain light in a certain frame and a certain perspective and I think it's seeking out these groups of people, whether it's nonprofits, activist groups, media outlets, um, certain political leaders or influencers um, in any field that you're in, from healthcare 
to even international relations. You can look at how whiteness, Eurocentric views have been the norm, and you can start reading literature on how to question that and look beyond that in any capacity. Um, and that just starts with you making a, you know, an effort in yourself, like, I know this is gonna be hard. These conversations are so hard, and I'm even dealing with how hard they can get to this day. But reminding myself, but actually though, even if it's hard, I think that's why I know it's important because the most important things, the most life-changing things in our life with anything are usually the hardest. Absolutely, absolutely. And, but the flip side of that is this oversensitivity, this like if every little thing in life becomes a, a gaslight or, you know, you know, potential for uh, an explosion. What about the other side of it? Like, I have a friend who is a is a stand up comedian in Hong Kong, in fact, and she is concerned that this is the death of stand up comedy because you can't have any racial jokes anymore. You can't have, um, you can't just like have fun with a term, a slang, a slur. Um, so where's that? middle ground like you know where where are we able to cut some slack where we have humanity but at the same time have a sense of humor to recognizing differences in a respectable way mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i think with the with the humor for example um i think there's a way to talk about race uh through humor actually i think humor is a, is a very excellent anti-racist tool because mm -hmm. um it, it it creates a space for information to be shared in a very, you know, lighthearted way. Um, so you have comedians, for example, Jenny Yang. I think she is a mm. great example of who uses comedy to talk about race and put forth issues um, and initiatives. Um, but I think that that again goes to the hard work of comedians to understand the context and to, you know, I think I think when people make mistakes, they think, oh, it's the end of the world, like. You know, and it shouldn't be um, mm -hmm. because we have to undo decades of socialization that we've been taught our whole lives. We're not going to get it right the first time. Yeah. Um, so I think it's understanding like, hey, you know what? I'm going into this the best I can and I'm going to hold myself accountable when I offend someone. And then I will decide whether or not I will mitigate that. But the most important thing is that I listen Yes, listening is the the very key fundamental part, and I think I think there are ways to do. I think East West Center is actually doing a webinar on how comedy can be used to con um um to go against bigotry uh, next oh. week. Oh, uh, excellent! This, yeah, yeah, yeah. So if if you want to check that out, so I I think when we have arguments about oversensitivity, like yes, I think we shouldn't just attack people unless if it really really hurt you and sometimes you have that trauma and it just comes out like you haven't worked that through yet like mm. you know what i i apologize and you you know sometimes you just make those mistakes and you you just you know um lash out on someone when you were really hurt but see this is this is where the meeting ground has to be created like where you acknowledge the hurt where you you say you were hurt and, and start to create conversations on like, why, how, what can we do?
do moving forward. Yes, that that is the perfect way to leave people lingering on on this subject, Carol. I, I'm so grateful for you bringing it all to I mean, I think we can talk for hours on this and I think it should and hopefully spur people who are listening to our conversation to think about it and how how why why we do think the way we do and how we should be changing the way perhaps or how we address like you say and acknowledge the hurt i think those are all really really important um constructive um ways to move forward in this solidarity um and recognizing that this movement is very very significant on a global scale and so i um i'm so grateful for you sharing your knowledge and experience and 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 everything and stories carol um is there anything else you wanted to leave our listeners to think about any food for thought for the day? Oh, that's a great question. I just want to thank you for um, inviting me to speak. I, I'm so honored. And I think it's really great work that even us having this conversation, that is a very important key step because these conversations shouldn't just be because of Black Lives Matter. These conversations should have been around for a long time. I wish I talked about race and identity um, growing up so that I, you know, could have these, these words and tools to understand my experience yeah. and to help other people see yeah. their experience. So for anyone listening, I think, um, don't, don't think about, about like, oh, whether you get it right or wrong, um, I think it's like, hey, I'm going to start in this process of having a purpose to talk about race in order to better understand myself, the world we live in, and to help others in my community. Very cool. That's Carol Lee from East West Center, grad degree fellow and majoring in Asian International Affairs. Thank you so much, Carol. That was really, really food for thought for today. Thank you, Crystal.